expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Coffee? Uh, Rack the Gino, please. Yeah. Here you go. Thanks. So where are you from? Me? Tyco City. <laughs> oh, a lunar scooter. I haven't heard that in a long time. Yeah, picked it up from my granddad. Of course, he still calls Luna the moon, like it's the only one or something. Well, nobody who's ever lived on the moon calls it Luna either. That's just something they say on Earth. Oh, so what's it like? You're from Earth, aren't you? You've never been to the moon? Just never got around to it. Tell me about it. Well, people say it's so barren and harsh, but... It's not. It's beautiful. I mean, Tycho City is just a city, but outside where the gravity is still low and there's no air. You know, the sun only comes up once a month on the moon. Every lunar morning, my father and I would put on suits, hike out across a sea of clouds. We'd stop at this collection of boulders on the western rim and wait for the sun to come up. Dawn is so shocking on the moon. One minute you're in the darkest night you can imagine, and the next instant the sun lifts up and this glorious pure light just explodes across the surface. <laughs> I felt like I met God every morning. I'm on duty. Excuse me. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 23rd, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright and welcome to our show today, where 519-661-3600 is the number you can call to join our conversation today. And I'm afraid today I'm going to be mooning you for the whole show, because we're going to be talking about what's new in astronomy on the moon, what, what, are, what are the future plans for man going into space, and some of the expectations behind it. We'll be talking about why just right is the zone of life. I'm going to talk about the exoplosion in exoplanets because the count is on. If you don't know what an exoplanet is, you're going to find out soon because I didn't know a lot of this stuff. And we're going to find out why spacemen are from Mars and nobody's from Venus. And first we're going to begin with a section on moons rising. You know, uh, the moon has been a lot in the news lately and not just for the usual reasons you may have heard. Of course, there's the 40th celebration of man's first landing on the moon in July 1969. And just two days ago, both India and China got to witness what astronomers called one of the best viewings of a solar eclipse ever. 
But most of all, the moon is undergoing a resurgence of interest by both scientists and by governments, and most notably the private sector, which is planning to enter the race on its own terms. I've talked a bit about that on the show before, and this latter group really does deserve its own show and is going to be again talked about on a show in the future, but not today. I was amazed at how much information there was. I collect these files and file folders uh, over time. And I imagine I used more original sources in terms of number of clippings for today's show than I did for any other, because uh, this is really not my area of expertise. But what I found fascinated me. Um, For example, China plans to go into space, and in particular to the moon, ahead of the Americans' next venture there. Christopher Bodine of the Associated Press, September 23, 2008, reports that future goals of the Chinese program are believed to include an unmanned moon landing about 2012, a mission to return samples in 2015, and possibly a manned lunar mission by 2017, three years ahead of the U.S. target date for returning to the moon. Riding a wave of pride and patriotism after hosting the Olympics, China's communist leaders face few of the public doubts of budgetary pressures constraining such programs elsewhere. And, of course, India became the sixth country on the moon with the successful landing of a lunar probe on November 14, 2008. Chief among the lunar mission's goals is mapping not only the surface of the moon, but what lies beneath, reports the Associated Press on November 1508. If successful, India will join what is shaping up to be a 21st century space race with Chinese and Japanese craft already in orbit around the moon. And in a July 20th, 09 Associated Press article, they comment, quote, 40 years after Apollo 11, the moon landing is talked about as a generic human achievement, not an American one. But Apollo at the time was more about U.S. commitment and ingenuity. Historian Douglas Brinkley called the Apollo program, quote, the exemplary moment of America's we-can-do-anything attitude, end quote. The idea in a world where American capitalism was pitted against Soviet communism on a daily basis was, quote, to prove to the world which system was best and which one was the future, said Ted Sorensen, a Kennedy advisor. But Neil Armstrong wasn't merely talking about that small step of his. It was, as he said on the moon 40 years ago, a giant leap for mankind, and it still is. So what is the next great leap for mankind? Well, it's not just the moon, but our solar system's other planets and their moons, and a whole new field of planetary mapping and discovery of what are called exoplanets, which are, and get this, observed planets in orbit around other stars, which I guess from their point of view would be called other suns, and to say nothing about our search for life elsewhere in the universe, which is a whole subject of itself. That's the general theme of our show today, and I've chosen to limit my focus because uh, there are so many related and equally fascinating scientific subjects to consider on uh, basically what we're talking about today. But uh, strangely enough, I've decided to talk about all just the various rocks and floating debris that's flying around everywhere in space. And on what that means to you and me today, it certainly was a learning experience for me. And, uh, you know, I'm already feeling woefully behind the times, shall we say, with the speed that discoveries are being made. 
So I thought I would share with you some of what I've been learning. Basically, for me, this was a fact-finding mission because um, facts are kind of helpful at arriving at correct conclusions about the nature of our universe, the nature of life, and the nature of humanity. We're part of the universe, and don't ever think otherwise. We are part of nature. So let's begin our brief journey away from our third rock from the sun, and we'll take a look at some of those other rocks, not just our sun, but other suns. And of course, we're going to start with our own moon, Luna. Now I'm going to start with a clip coming up next here, and this one I have to really think, this is from a 2006 BBC documentary simply called The Moon, and uh, all the scientific clips you'll hear are from that show. And uh, uh, this was actually aired again uh, just a little while ago. And uh, I found it very fascinating. So let's listen in on some of the new stuff that's happening, uh, basically, in, our, in the whole moon situation. And we'll pick up on the other side. Until very recently, the moon remained an enigma. And it was this mysterious quality which fueled our fascination. Where did it come from? What was it made of? And the biggest question of all, was it a world like ours? Did it harbor life? For millennia, it was impossible to know. No one even knew what the surface of the moon looked like. All that changed in 1608, when an Italian astronomer made a primitive telescope. For the first time, he was able to get a close-up look at the moon. His name was Galileo Galilei and what he saw shattered conventional wisdom. At the time, the church insisted that all heavenly bodies were perfect, unblemished spheres, and that the Earth was the only body in the universe that was flawed. But Galileo's close-up view of the moon's surface revealed a world that was far from perfect. He described it as rough and uneven, just like the surface of Earth itself. Perhaps it was a living world like our own. Hundreds of years later, our knowledge of the moon had barely improved. Just how ignorant we were was revealed in 1835. An American newspaper published a front-page story announcing that herds of bison had been observed tramping across the lunar surface. Readers were entranced by this vision. A few days later, it was revealed to be an elaborate hoax. The only way to find out what was really on the moon was to go there and take a look. But over a hundred years later, it still seemed an impossible dream. All that finally changed in the early 1960s. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. Kennedy's bid for the moon came out of a Cold War battle to win over people's hearts and minds. It was an inspired move, tapping into an ancient dream. Finally, we would find the answers to the moon's great mysteries. How was it formed? What was it made of? And was it a home for some form of life?
remember the night of the, the landing, and I looked up from the parking lot, and there was the moon, and you could see the little dark smudge over on the right side of the moon, which is the Sea of Tranquility. And you knew that there were two men, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, at that time, by that time, trying to sleep in their lunar module on the surface of that smudge that you can see from Houston. Over the next three years, five more missions landed on the moon. Each one was more ambitious than the last. Whereas Armstrong and Aldrin had only taken a few tentative steps from the lunar module, the astronauts on later missions traveled miles across the surface. They spent days at a time on the moon, visiting different locations, collecting samples of rock and soil, and setting up scientific experiments. Guess what we just found? I think we found what we came for. Crystal rock, huh? Yes, sir. But down on Earth, with each mission, the public interest was starting to wane. By the time it came to Apollo 17, NASA even had to pay the American TV networks to cover the mission. By the fourth or fifth time that we had gone to the moon, it was probably was page two or three news. You know, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't headline. There is boring soil. People were getting bored with going to the moon. Once you've seen astronauts collect rocks for a few times, it ceases to fascinate. Going to the moon had been done, and it, there was a feeling that it was now time to do other things. You know, there's a state of apathy in the United States now, I guess. People just don't care one way or another. I think that it's, uh, we are spending too much money on the moon. I think they could use the time, the energy, and the money to better advantage here in the United States. There's lots of room for improvement here. Rather than spend all that money, exploring space when people are starving here and that money could be put to very good use in improving life here. And welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM, and this is Just Right, where we'll be with you from now till noon. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join the conversation today. Now, those last comments you heard there were, I think, expressions of just, you know, pure ignorance and misunderstanding. Leaving aside for the time being the issue of government funding for space projects, which, which by the way, is justifiable from a military and jurisdictional, you know, policing point of view, provided, of course, we're talking about a free country, the issue of whether money is better spent directly on social issues like poverty or on the attainment of knowledge, I think it's profoundly on the side of the latter. The money's better spent in space than on the ground, so to speak. You've heard the old saying, you know, give a man a fish and feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and feed him for a lifetime. Well, knowledge is the road to a better life on this earth, and that, uh, you know, not merely includes what some people think is just incidental knowledge about our universe and our surrounding space environment, but it demands a fundamental understanding of how our universe has shaped itself. Uh, you know, the fact that many people can't concretize this kind of an abstraction in their daily lives is, I think, what leads them to say silly things that do not correspond to reality. The money 
you know, used to explore space is, quote, being put to, to use to improve life here, end quote, as the last critic suggested it should be. And a similar sentiment is still being expressed today. And I find you find it in the strangest of places, and this is from The Economist, January 24, 2009, in an article called Mars Rising, question mark, uh, why NASA should give up its ambitions to send men into space. Can you believe that? And here's what they say. Of places close enough for people to visit, Mars is the only one that anybody seriously thinks might support life. Now, just to let you know, folks, that's wrong. And uh, you'll see, see how easy it is to begin a whole argument on a false premise. You'll be hearing more about that in a moment. But he, they continue, the possibility of life on Mars is too thrilling for mankind to ignore. But how should we explore such questions? With men or with machines? U.S. President Obama's transition team has already been asking difficult questions of NASA, in particular about the cost of scrapping parts of the successor system designed to return humans to the moon by 2020 as a stepping stone to visiting Mars. Meanwhile, Mr. Obama's administration is wondering about spending more money on lots of new satellites designed to look down at the Earth rather than outward into space. Luckily, technology means that man can explore both the moon and Mars more fully without going there himself. Robots can be made sterile, which germ-infested humans who risk spreading disease around the solar system cannot. Humanity, some will argue, is driven by a yearning to boldly go for places beyond its crowded corner of the universe. If so, private efforts will surely carry people into space, though whether they should be allowed to, given the risk of contaminating distant ecosystems, is worth considering. Now, I don't know what kind of argument that is, but it's kind of outrageous. First of all, one of the reasons, you know, he'd like to see robots used instead of people is because, of course, it's cheaper, and then governments can have more money to spend on welfare programs. And when he talks about, you know, us germ-infested humans who spread disease around this, the solar system, that's just plainly outrageous. The writer is saying, think about this for a minute, that, it, and, and I don't know who the writer is, and the economists, they never identify the writers. It's all uh, third person, no name. Um, but, but the writer is saying that in the search for life, life itself is unwelcome. Uh, does anyone else see the sheer irony of this? I mean, this is the precautionary principle running amok. Consider the writer's sense of life in viewing human life as, quote, germ-infested disease spreading and, quote, agents of destruction. I mean, the very definition of a disease is that which threatens human life, isn't it? What about good germs? Um, aren't they a similar threat? Isn't all life potentially, quote, germ-infested disease spreading, end quote? Isn't that essentially what life is? Isn't that what we're looking for out there, for heaven's sakes? And, uh, you know, what about the risk to humans from, quote, germ-infested disease spreading life forms that might already be on the moons and planets we visit? I mean, it goes both ways, doesn't it? So you can just see the, the mentality there, the green mentality that has permeated at The Economist blows me away sometimes. And uh, that's one of the reasons, you know, they give you a lot of good scientific information and then their editorials uh, just go way off the right-wing track, you know. Uh, the Economist editorially supports CO2 legislation while simultaneously rejecting all the science and theory behind it, you know. Like, what gives with that? Just like our city council, they know that turning your car on and off creates more pollution, so they want to force you to do it by law. But I digress. In yet another mixed-message news editorial on space travel, The Economist, in a September 29, 2007 piece headlined, Spacemen Are From Mars, 
wrote in referring to the so-called space race between the Soviets and America, which ended with a man on the moon, quote, the legacy of all this posturing is a view of space travel, uh, is a view of space travel as a macho gung-ho affair. In the 1950s, many people imagined that in the decades to come, the new frontier would be beaten back by pioneers bent on interplanetary colonization. By the end of the millennium, there would be a moon base at the very least. Probably there would be hotels in orbit, frequent missions to other planets, and mines on asteroids extracting metals considered rare and precious on Earth. In fact, I talked about that very phenomenon at a time, but what they didn't see coming was socialism, and that's what happened. All that money got eaten up. That's when it started, in the late 60s. Canada and other countries never had real deficits before. As it turned out, most of the satellites in orbit around the Earth look down rather than up, notes the economist, and the biggest mental change wrought by spaceflight has not been an appreciation of the vastness of the universe, but rather of the smallness and fragility and unity of Earth. Some insist that humanity must hurry on with a Martian vision to explore and ultimately to colonize other planets to secure the species' future. That may be necessary one day, and many countries and some companies still pursue this vision of space. America's government wants a moon base, and the Chinese are interested in going there too. The lesson of the past 50 years, however, says the economist, is that the more humanity discovers about space, the rarer and more precious life on Earth seems. To extend John Gray's metaphor about men and women, space was originally from Mars, as it has turned out space is actually from Venus. People have hardly traveled anywhere at all, although a scandalous amount of money has been wasted on the conceit that voyaging across the cosmos is humanity's destiny. For the moment, Venusian voyage to understand mankind's home planet are better than Martian ones to understand how to abandon the mother ship, end quote. And I could not disagree more with that sentiment. Though I do understand how money is wasted when it's directed by political concerns and by governments. But that's a separate issue and should be addressed as such. One does not attack science or its, obje- or its objectives simply to complain about the waste of government spending. You know, unlike social spending, but very much like war, interestingly enough, Government efforts on the science and space exploration programs are far more focused and can be objectively assessed. After all, a successful program is not one that simply squanders money as proof of its success, which is the way most government programs go, but rather the success of a stated mission and objective is what determines whether a program has failed or not. So, um, you know, you can actually, did the rocket get there or not? There's still people, by the way, who believe that we never went to the moon, but that's a whole other show, and I'm certainly going to be talking about that. Now, and speaking of Mars, I was surprised by how many relatively recent news clippings I had on the subject of Mars. Uh, quote, massive canyons on Mars show ancient water source, uh, end quote, reads the heading in the National Post of July 17th, 08, accompanied by an incredible Earth-like looking scene photographed by the European Space Agency's Mars Express. The photo clearly shows cliffs estimated at 4,000 meters high. Uh, quote, flat, stony, and frozen, end quote, reached the headline of the National Post article on May 2708, written by Paul Handley, referring to the mission of the Phoenix Mars lander, which ironically, as per a previous day's National Post article, landed on a part of the red planet called the Green Valley. Interesting. Uh, but the writer notes, quote, 
Of the 11 previous attempts to land a spacecraft on the Red Planet, only five have succeeded. Didn't realize the odds were that low. Uh, the flat Martian Valley floor is expected to have water-rich permafrost within reach of the lander's robotic arm. For the past decade, NASA has been searching for, searching for signs of past water on Mars with a fleet of orbiters and a pair of rovers on the ground. The detection of subsurface frozen water in 2002 by Mars Odyssey prompted scientists to propose the Phoenix mission to investigate. End quote. And then in the March 21st, back to The Economist again, uh, of this year, we see three, quote, grainy photographs, which may be the first evidence that liquid water can exist on Mars, end quote. And these photos were taken by the Phoenix lander. The reason for the excitement, noted the article, is that although the existence of ice on Mars has been known since, get this, since 1666, when the planet's polar caps were first seen, the, uh, the low temperatures and air pressures there meant that water, even if heavily salted, is likely either to freeze or to evaporate. If it can remain liquid on the leg of a lander, perhaps it can do so elsewhere and thus support life, they say. And finally, from Sun Media on July 4, 2009, the headline, quote, Canadians find snow on Mars, end quote, which begins by saying, I thought this was funny, quote, leave it to a bunch of Canadians to discover snow falling on Mars. Data transmitted by the Canadian-built laser instrument aboard the lander showed the first ever evidence of precipitation on the red planet. It would be very mild by Earth standards, said York University professor Jim Whiteway, the lead Canadian scientist involved with NASA's Mars Phoenix lander. If you stand in the Arctic in January or February, there are tiny ice crystals glinting in the atmosphere. It would be more like that. In the Arctic, it's called diamond dust. And according to some trivia, by the way, info about Mars that appeared in the free press on June 8th, all this stuff I found on my file folders, eh? Um, apparently, volcanoes in the Tharsis region of Mars are up to 100 times larger than those anywhere on Earth. Now, I almost find that a bit hard to believe. I don't know if they mean, you know, relative to the size of the planet or in absolute sense. They didn't say. But interestingly... For, your, for those of you into this, Mars has about one-half the diameter of the Earth. It's uh, 6,791 kilometers versus Earth's 12,755. It has twice, twice the length of year, 687 Earth days to our 365 and a quarter. Gravity is only 37.5% that of Earth. The average temperature is minus 60 degrees centigrade, so if you like it down on the Arctic, uh, or in the, <laughs> in the Antarctic, rather, it'd be closer to what it might be on Mars. But strangely, a Martian day is almost equal to an Earth day, at 24 hours and 37 minutes versus our 23 hours and 56 minutes. Now... Going to the other side of Earth's orbit, towards the Sun, we have the planet Venus, which appears barren and lifeless. In a December 1st, 2007 article in The Economist titled Barren Land, Why Venus is Lifeless, they describe Venus as a planet shrouded by, quote, clouds of sulfuric acid, crushing atmosphere of carbon dioxide, and blast furnace surface temperatures of 457 degrees centigrade. Yet in its youth, it was like its gentler sister Earth, swathed in oceans that provided a suitable breeding ground for life. What went wrong, they ask. Now, you know, I don't think wrong is the right question to ask, since right and wrong do not apply to laws of causality. So, you know, this is just what happens, right? 
since 1962, more than 30 spacecraft have made the trip to Venus, and the most recent being the Venus Express, launched by the European Space Agency in 2005. I noticed, by the way, more and more how it's not American missions that you're reading from in terms of getting the data. And uh, they say that Earth and Venus probably started out much at the, you know, the same way. The Earth's oceans teemed with plants and animals that converted most of its atmospheric carbon dioxide into carbonates and sank to the bottom as they died to become sedimentary rocks. By contrast, Venus lost most of its liquid water. And that is because Venus, being closer to the sun, and please note, not due to idling, um, started to warm up. Planetary scientists have also long blamed Venus's sterility on the lack of an internal magnetic field. And that's an interesting thing in and of itself, that uh, not all planets have a magnetic field like the Earth. So you could take your compass along, and I guess it just wouldn't do you much good unless you set up your own magnetic pole, I guess. Um, Venus Express has detected oxygen, hydrogen, and helium ions, remnants of early oceans escaping into space. The two sisters may have started as twins, but as they have grown older... They have grown apart. And finally, to the laughing stocks of the universe, quote-unquote, as the National Post's heading of a book review on the subject of the former planet Pluto, uh, called the Plutophiles by Neil Tyson. You know, we only have eight planets. A lot of people still think we have nine. Uh, Pluto got demoted, you know. Discovered in 1930 by Clyde Tombaugh, Pluto enjoyed real status for decades as one of the nine planets and the only one with a Disney dog. Then it was downsized to a lowly dwarf planet in 2006 at a dramatic meeting of astrophysicists. So just what's the matter with Pluto? Well, being really small and really icy is bad, they say. Then there's its debris-cluttered orbit and its shape. Pluto is not sufficiently round. Now, that surprised me. I thought, uh, just to begin with, anything that could be called a planet had to be round, uh, you know, generally, because that means it's been around long enough to compact into a round shape. And it also keeps company with a strange moon, Charon, which just might be a candidate itself for dwarf planethood. An astrophysicist and TV personality, Tyson brings the right light tone to his entertaining story of Pluto's fall from grace, referring to letters from school kids. Quote, Would you say a small child or a midget wasn't a person? End quote, asked one aggrieved child. So I guess it appears that planets are people too to some people. Uh, Now this was interesting too. This is a whole other subject about what's floating around out there. Colby Koch, in his December 29th, 08 National Post editorial called Dodging Fastballs from Space, comments that, quote, According to the previous numbers, the Earth only had to worry about devastating strikes from space objects no more than, say, once every thousand years. Now that estimated wait time may be shrinking. Wish we could do that with our medical system. Uh, Kosh's point was illustrated in the London Free Press by an associa- uh, Association Press article, March 5, 2009, Close Encounters of the Asteroid Kind Buzz Earth, where we discover that uh, the asteroid named 2009 DD45 was about 78,500 kilometers from Earth when it zipped past early Monday. That would be Monday of, in March. This was pretty darn close, astronomer Timothy Sfar of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center of Astrophysics said, but not as close as the tiny meteorite 2004 FU-162, which came within 6,500 kilometers in, in 2004. 
The space rock measured between 21 meters and 47 meters in diameter, the same size as the asteroid that exploded over Siberia in 1908 and leveled more than 2,000 square kilometers of forest. So you can see the danger of these things that are floating around out there. And uh, I think the space debris is probably, if you really wanted to play the odds, a larger threat to our existence on this planet than any of the other uh, environmentally friendly things that we're thinking about here. And um, I have another article that was headlined, quote, Saturn moon plumes may contain water from November 2708. But I think that subject may be better covered in our following clips, uh, which will again be from the BBC production, The Moon. So we're going to take a break at the half hour here. And when we come back on the other side, we'll be talking about a whole new bunch of spheres and that we are discovering called the exoplanets and that's really fascinating so we'll be back after this over the years scientists continued to make new discoveries about our moon but somehow it was never enough to reignite our passion for our closest neighbor and that was partly because our attention had turned elsewhere there are over 150 other moons in the solar system. And by the late 1970s, we were starting to explore them. The results were spectacular. We thought the moons of the outer planets would be lumps of ice covered in craters. And that was about it. But when Voyager started transmitting back pictures of Jupiter's innermost moon, Io, there was a strange anomaly. So I had discovered the first ever volcanic eruption ever seen on another world besides the Earth. Here was a moon to swoon over. It was far more exciting and exotic than our own boring, lifeless moon. And Io was just the beginning. Soon another of Jupiter's moons, Europa, was also wowing scientists. Europa's surface had no craters. Close up, it was covered in cracks and canyons. Looking at it, scientists realized it was similar to scenes they knew from Earth, from the poles. Europa was covered in ice. And because there were no craters, they knew that the ice must have melted and refrozen many times. And that could mean only one thing. There had to be liquid water, the crucial ingredient for life on Europa. It got even more exciting when scientists began to speculate where the heat to melt the ice was coming from. Again, the answer lay within our own planet. On the floors of the oceans of the Earth, scientists had discovered black smokers, volcanic heat sources coming from below the Earth's crust, warming the water from below. Perhaps hot vents like these could exist under Europa's icy crust. Scientists could barely contain their excitement. Liquid water and a volcanic heat source sounded like the kind of conditions that many believe gave birth to life on Earth. It wasn't just Jupiter's moons that were attracting attention. When the Voyager probe flew past Saturn, it captured an image of its largest moon, Titan. It was strangely fuzzy. It looked as though Titan was shrouded in an atmosphere just like our own planet. Scientists were desperate to know more. What lay beneath this thick atmosphere? Could it have other similarities to Earth? 
they didn't get their chance to find out until 20 years later, when Cassini lifted off. It was one of the biggest rockets ever launched. But even so, it took seven years to get to Saturn. And then it turned its attention to Titan. For its party piece, Cassini dropped a probe called Huygens through the Titan atmosphere onto the hidden surface. It revealed a world that scientists believe could be strikingly similar to the early Earth. Pictures that were revealed by Huygens during its parachute descent towards the surface of Titan um, showed at one point a, a, a network of valleys. It could have, you could have been floating over many parts of the Earth where, where you've got hills and valleys in between them and the valleys converging on one another and draining into a sea. So we can see landforms on Titan that look very, very familiar to people who do landform studies on the Earth. The valley networks are very similar to what you get produced by rainfall on the Earth. of great beauty and tantalizing possibilities. They had volcanoes, ice-covered oceans, active geysers, and thick atmospheres. There was even the possibility of life. Moons were the most exciting places in the solar system. And so scientists began to wonder whether our own long-abandoned moon was perhaps worth another look. So, in 1994, a small unmanned orbiter, Clementine, was sent back to the moon. The first spacecraft to make the journey in more than 20 years. And this mission would go somewhere new. Technology had moved on since the 70s. And so Clementine would be able to reach an area of the moon that had never been seen in detail before. The lunar poles. Clementine spent two months bombarding the moon with radio waves, and in doing so, it made a discovery that scientists had never dreamt of. They found what appeared to be patches of ice. Its radar was getting signals being bounced back from the surface very strongly in a way that was consistent with there being patches of ice down there. And uh, it's, it's not a lot of ice. It could, uh, could fill... Uh, fill plenty of Olympic-sized swimming pools, but if you were to melt it and, sp and spread it out over the lunar surface, it would be, I don't know, a millimetre thick or something. You're not going to produce oceans on the moon from this ice, but enough there for humans to exploit. The existence of water on the moon, even if it was frozen, changed everything. The bleak and barren landscape wasn't so inhospitable after all. Suddenly, the possibilities seemed endless. With life-sustaining water, the moon could one day be a base in space, a stepping stone to the rest of the universe. Humans might even live there one day. As if to drive home the renewed fascination, 45 years after President Kennedy's famous pledge to take us to the moon, another US president launched a new mission. Returning to the moon is an important step for our space program. Establishing an extended human presence on the moon. 
could vastly reduce the cost of further space exploration, making possible ever more ambitious missions. The moon is a logical step toward further progress and achievement. Human beings are headed into the cosmos. Well, we're not too sure about that if, as the other article about President Obama suggests, that uh, they might reverse their decision on that, but I don't know. I don't know what the status of that is. Um, there's a lot, you know, you can tell there's a lot of speculation goes on with all these discoveries. And uh, if there's one thing that's hitting me over the head, the more and more I see about astronomical discovery, it is that water is everywhere. It's floating around out there like one of the most plentiful things floating around out there, but <laughs> we just can't get at it yet. But this, this portion I want to turn away from our own solar system and go into an area now that is called exoplanets. And I refer to The Economist. And now these, these articles, you're going to hear different numbers in each one because I've placed them in chronological order to give you some idea of how fast these discoveries are being made. And this one was from 2006, October 14th, The Economist. When a world is born, it says, and the discovery of, of new planets has forced a rethink of how they formed, reads the headline. And then they write that recent discoveries of planets outside the solar system, exoplanets to give them their proper name, have made scientists suspect that not all such objects have formed in the same way as the Earth and her neighbors. This insight raises the possibility that the universe contains many more exoplanets than was previously thought. The first was discovered in 1993, orbiting a pulsar. Two years later, a gaseous giant circling a sun-like star called 51 Pegasi looked unusual because it orbits its host star at a mere 20th of the distance of the Earth from the sun. Astronomers have since detected more than 200 exoplanets, and such quirks are no longer novel. In their positioning, or in some other respect, most differ substantially from the planets of our own solar system. Now this gets weird. Stranger sightings have been made which may rewrite theories of planetary formation completely. A month ago, astronomers at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center of Astrophysics announced they had found a truly exotic exoplanet. The object, dubbed HAT-P-1, is the biggest gaseous giant yet discovered. It orbits one of a pair of stars 450 light-years away in the or constellation Lacrita, circling its host every few days. Its distance from this star is only 5% of that between the Earth and the Sun. The body density is extremely low, comparable to that of cork. Can you imagine a planet made out of cork? Uh, moreover, HAT-P-1 is the second exoplanet that is much bigger and less dense than theory predicts. Astrophysicists are baffled as to how such a world could form. A paper describing the discovery has been submitted to the Astrophysical Journal. This follows the discovery last year of a gaseous giant orbiting a star that is itself orbited by a binary star system. Such an arrangement would have quickly shed its protoplanetary disks, so how exactly the exoplanet came to be formed is a mystery. The discovery of exoplanets in binary and triple star systems raises the prospect that the galaxy houses many more such objects than was previously thought. 
More than 60% of the stars in the Milky Way have a companion star around which they orbit. Isn't that interesting? Most searches for exoplanets have avoided such systems because the presence of two stars complicates matters. But given that exoplanets could well form in many different ways, astrophysicists believe that taking a closer look at the neglected majority of double stars may reveal a galaxy full of new worlds. In another Economist article, now we move up to September 1507, exoplanets slash survivor, a planet avoids being engulfed, we discovered that... Astronomers have long come to the conclusion that the Earth will be obliterated by a giant fireball as the sun burns up and expands so that its surface touches the planet. Recently, they've spotted somewhere that has managed to avoid such a fate. This planet is orbiting a star in the Pegasus constellation some 50 light years away. Researchers reckon that the planet was once at a distance roughly equal to that of Earth from the sun, and that when it expanded, the red giant would have encompassed some... 100% of that distance. But then the planet spiraled out to take its present orbit. The discovery suggests that the Earth may survive the explosion of the Sun, even if life on Earth might not. And in yet another Economist article, November 10, 2007, titled The Famous Five, we learn about, quote, five planets orbiting a distant star which form a real alien solar system. Finding planets has become commonplace, they report. A new one is unearthed, so to speak, every couple of weeks. Which is why the announcement on November 6th by Jeff Marcy of the University of California, Berkeley, and his colleagues that they have identified a system with at least five planets is especially pleasing. At last, astronomers have something they can realistically compare with the eight-planet system that includes Earth. The star at the center of the system in question is 55 Cancri A, a yellow dwarf system to the sun that lies 40 light, light years away. Finding five planets in a solar system other than the Earth represents a record and is all the more impressive because many astronomers thought it would not be possible to disentangle so many signals. And now we move to February 15, 2008 in the National Post. Quote, astronomers find two new planets. And they say that astronomers are reporting that in a solar system thousands of light years away, a star about half the size of our sun is being orbited by two planets. The simultaneous discovery of two planets that seem like smaller versions of Jupiter and Saturn is rare, they report. And then by February 21st, 2009, The Economist reports in an article titled The Lonely Planet Guide, Attempts to Find Alien Life on Earth and Elsewhere, that now look what the number's up to now. Some 340 planets have now been found orbiting stars other than the Sun. And earlier this month, a French spacecraft called Corot, C-O-R-O-T, discovered the smallest yet. Most such exoplanets are gaseous giants bigger than Jupiter. These are incapable of supporting life as we know it. However, Corot XO7b, as the newly located orb is known, is only slightly larger than Earth and is thought to have a rocky surface. An exoplanet that had a large moon would be of particular interest. The moon's presence creates a tide on Earth, and many believe these may, important, may be important to the origin and maintenance of life. If a tide-causing moon does enhance the chance of life flourishing on a planet, then aliens may be abundant. It is one thing, though, to have the right conditions for life. It is another for life to form, they note. And then finally, they say the planet hunters, economists June 2nd of... Uh, 2009. The search for alien life is yielding weird new worlds at a remarkable rate, they say. 
Early science is a lot like stamp collecting, which means collecting specimens. In planetary science, the result is a menagerie of exotic new worlds, some 236 of which were this week confirmed as exoplanets, that is, planets outside the solar system. And over the past few days, members of the American Astronomical Society meeting in Honolulu have also been tussling over whether the first Earth-like planet announced at the end of April has actually been found. The rate of progress is extraordinary. The first exoplanet orbiting a normal star was discovered a mere 12 years ago. Before that, the answer to the rhetorical question, are we alone, might, quas- po- might quite possibly have been yes. Exoplanets are the stuff of science fiction. Now the hunt is well and truly on for places that are capable of sustaining life. And in some ways, the speculations of the sci-fi writers have far been outstripped by reality. So we're going to take a quick break now for a smile and come back with some conclusionary comments on this whole situation and the search for life in outer space. Not a cloud in the sky. Great day for spaceship skipping. Space spaceship? Space... space... space. What? Take out my spaceship. Scale across your sky like a flat rock across a brook. Take people's minds off the weather. Let them report a strange sighting. Would you like to see a strange sighting? Huh? Out right here in your own backyard. Every year, I think one of the nice things about doing this festival is I get to visit my parents, you know, in Ottawa. Last year, when I visited my parents, I found out that the year before, my dad had a heart attack, and they didn't tell me. The reason they didn't tell me, because my mother said, well, we didn't want to bother you, because we knew you were getting ready for just for laughs. That killed me. Parents, they they just killed me. We don't want to bother you. So if that's on the don't bother me list, what could possibly happen on them for them to phone me? The aliens have kidnapped your father, and they're about to probe him. Let me get this straight. So the aliens are going to probe Dad, but they're allowing you to use the phone. All right, put the head alien on the phone. Hello? Yeah, this is Mike McDonald. Yeah, comedian. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I I don't really write the jokes, I just remember them. Funny you should bring up the family material. Uh, I was thinking if you could do me a favor. When you probe my dad, could you say just before you probe him, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. (laughs) Thanks. Oh, yeah, it does. Hey, where is everybody, asks Gwyn Dyer in a London Free Press March 14th commentary. And he says you can go on to the web, type in Planet Quest New Worlds Atlas or Extrasolar Planets Encyclopedia or NASA Star and Exoplanet Database and directly access the data on 240 new planets that have been put there so far. That number is set to grow very fast now. He's already out of date by about 110. Uh, for, for last Saturday, NASA successfully launched a Kepler telescope, which will find many more uh, planets, including potentially Earth-like ones. He says, now we know that planets are as common as dirt. Even in that tiny section of the sky, Kepler will probably miss tens of thousands of other planets whose orbits do not bring them between their star and us. You know, it's an interesting point. We can only see them, actually photograph them if they come between the star. But what about the ones that aren't orbiting on the same plane? 
And he says, uh, but a new generation of orbiting observatories that are planned for the next decade is going to survey a thousand of the closest stars looking for small rocky planets and seeking signs of life on them. Uh, He says, two big consequences are going to come out of this. One is a long and tempting list of Earth-like planets in our own stellar neighborhood. It's quite likely there will be evidence of life on many of them. Unless we can discover some loophole in the laws of physics, however, we may never reach them. For the distances involved are immense. But from now on, they will always be there, beckoning us to come and visit, even to come and settle them. The other question is a huge question about intelligent life in the universe. If planets capable of supporting life are so commonplace, then where is everybody? Is intelligence a rare accident in the evolutionary process, or have we just not figured out yet how mature galactic civilizations communicate, end quote. And speaking to that question as well, uh, in 2008 was, of course, Stephen Hawking, famed astrophysicist, who was talking about the cosmic question in Washington, are we alone? And the answer he said at the time was, probably not. And he theorized that there are possible answers to whether there are, or whether there is extraterrestrial life. One option is that there isn't any life elsewhere, or maybe there is intelligent life elsewhere, but when it gets smart enough to send signals into space, it is also smart enough to make destructive nuclear weapons. (laughs) Hawking, 66 at the time, said he prefers a third option. Quote, primitive life is very common and intelligent life is fairly rare, he said, and then noted, some would say it has yet to occur on Earth, <laughs> end quote. And, um, but here's a cool one. This is from uh, NASA Discover Galaxy for Life, where they talk about the Kepler being out there looking and checking the Milky Way. And they say they're actually checking 100,000 stars, not just 1,000, uh, that was dire quoted. And um, basically they say the mission is, to, is intended to find rocky planets orbiting the, quote, habitable zone around a star where they're not so close as to be scorched and not so far as to be frozen. What we're interested in finding are planets that are not too hot and not too cold, but, and get this, just right, said William Baroque of NASA. And what a better place to end the show. You know, maybe the most uh, you know, frustrating thing about talking about space travel and all this future stuff is, I guess, the, the knowledge that life has to return to normal for most of us, and we can't really uh, be flying around in space. So I guess for my part, I'll be taking my rides on all those great science fiction shows that are still being made. But for now, uh, we're going to have to remain Earthbound. And we hope that you'll join us again next week when we will return with our feet firmly planted on terra firma. Until then, act right, be right, do right, and think right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be alright. Here's a little quick thing right here. Here's when you know you're officially drunk. When you get to a taxi cab and you think the fare is the time. Oh my God, it's 15 past 14 already. Whoa, it's 22 past 25. Will we go through a wormhole?